And you don't hear this from the Democrats. They like to tell you just the opposite, and they didn't even know the bill. They run out, they say, death, death, death. Well, Obamacare is death. That's the one that's death. And besides that, it's failing, so you won't have it anyway. I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was President Donald Trump vowing again to repeal Obamacare. The Senate is currently locked in a multi-day debate to either take away pieces of the Affordable Care Act or maybe strike it down altogether. And to explain what's going on, I grabbed two knowledgeable sources for today's Pulse Check episode. First, I yanked Deputy Editor Jason Millman from our Politico healthcare team in for a quick conversation about the state of play in the Senate and who and what to watch as they move forward on trying to repeal Obamacare. Then after the break, I sat down with Ben Wickler. He's the Washington director of Move On, the advocacy and organizing group that's fighting hard against the Trump administration and their reforms. And I challenged Ben, if Republicans are successful on repealing Obamacare, is that a defeat for the resistance? You'll hear that interview after the break. A quick reminder, Pulse Check is available on all of your favorite podcast apps. And if it's not, I want to know. I'm at ddiamondapolitico.com or at ddiamond on Twitter. And this is the time to be listening, sharing, passing along Pulse Check with the healthcare debate, captivating Washington, D.C. and the nation. And second, I'll be in California this weekend at Politicon, the unconventional political convention, with my colleagues from Politico. We're doing a special episode of Nerdcast live from Politicon. I'll also be moderating a debate on the state of healthcare reform. You can find more at Politicon.com. And with that, here's my quick catch up with Jason Millman, Politico's deputy healthcare editor. I am joined by one-time Pulse Check host and deputy healthcare editor Jason Millman to talk about this crazy week in health policy. Hello, Jason. Hi. They haven't let me back since my last hosting gig, so uh, here we are. No, I, I think you got promoted officially after <laughs> your last hosting gig, so clearly things are going well for you. Our team is is deployed across the hill. A lot is happening in the fight for repealing the ACA. I'm curious from your perspective as, as our deputy editor, who are you watching? Who do you want us to be watching? And what parts of the process do you feel like are where the Republican effort could really run aground? There's quite a few that we're actually watching, uh, which has started coming to view because now we're getting votes on things before, you know, you can take positions, you can say you have deep concerns, but now we're actually seeing how, you know, people are lining up. Uh, On Tuesday night, we had the first vote on the so-called, you know, replacement plan. This was the GOP health plan that apparently McConnell and leaders have had trouble getting support for. And we saw that, you know, there were nine Republicans who voted against this. Um, and there were some Republicans who voted for it that we might have, you know, not expected them to support this. Um, including so, you know, John McCain, including who, who attacked the bill just hours before voting for it. Who attacked it hours before. Um, Capito from West Virginia, who, you know, had said that, uh, you know, she was particularly worried about the effect on uh, her state where the opioid epidemic has been, you know, the worst in the country. Um, but, you know, we also had guys like Moran, who's sort of, an, you know, an establishment Republican. You thought the Kansas would, senator, Jerry Kansas Moran. senator, yep, yeah, who would, you know, back McConnell. Um, so, you know, we're watching a host of moderates and some of these conservatives, too, that, uh, you know, like Rand Paul, Mike Lee, that have been particularly concerned that the repeal uh, plan is not good enough for them. It's not deep enough. 
we're talking on a Wednesday afternoon. As you pointed out, the repeal and replace package was voted down on Tuesday night. There is now the straight repeal. And by the time listeners are hearing this, we are fairly confident that's going to go down as well. What part of the process that's left include which the amendment process, the challenges with the parliamentarian, the final amendment, do you see as the place where things could really not work for Republicans and we could see a potential collapse of their push to repeal at least part of the ACA? That's going to be happening in Mitch McConnell's office. We're going to see tomorrow night, probably Thursday night, there's going to be Votorama, which is this budget reconciliation procedure in which they could bring a host of fast you know, rapid-fire amendments to the floor and make people take uncomfortable votes that could be used against them in campaign ads a year from now. Um, but the real action to watch is what happens to the so- so-called skinny repeal bill, which is probably the bill that's going to come to the floor at the end of all of this. And that's just going to be something that is going to be, you know, slim down repeal, just kick it over to the House. That is the main goal at this moment. So it appears at, at this moment anyway. Let's let's unpack that, that quote, skinny repeal bill. As some have pointed out, it still is a pretty significant change to the Affordable Care Act. The plan would include rolling back the individual mandate, the employer mandate, and also taking out pieces like potentially the prevention fund uh, to make the budget numbers work and rolling back the medical device tax as well. If you get rid of the individual mandate, that's where the markets could really run the ground. And even if the rest of the ACA insurance regulations stay, millions of people could either directly not sign up for coverage or alternately lose it at some point. Yeah, the individual mandate um, has been sort of the underpinning, the very unpopular underpinning of the Affordable Care Act. The idea was that if you require insurers to cover anybody, regardless of health condition, you need to have something in there that's going to encourage healthy people to sign up and make the markets work. Um, the individual mandate is there for that. But it's, you know, it's important to note that this is the skinny bill. It's sort of the opening bid that's, you know, how do we get something that the Senate and the House can live with that, you know, kicks it out of the Senate for now um, and just keeps the process going? Because ultimately, Republicans have not really had major legislative accomplishments so far into Trump's administration, and they want to move on to other priorities, which are more in their wheelhouse, um, like, you know, like tax reform is the big one. Um, and with August recess coming up, they're, they're trying to move on to other things. I can't remember who said this, but it's the hot potato theory of, of health care. The House just wanted to get something over with, and they passed a bill. Now the Senate, even if this skinny repeal package is something that almost nobody actually wants. People either wanted more comprehensive repeal or no repeal altogether. This is at least the effort to just keep the process moving forward. From your perspective as as one of our editors, we are deployed across the hill. The, the desks are empty because everyone is over there chasing things around except for me interviewing you. What is the story that you're worried about us missing with this minute-to-minute watch of the fate of the health repeal vote? Well, I never worry about us missing a story because there's so many of us watching out for things. But I mean, you got to, you know, we well, we take a step back and think about, you know, why is the GOP using this process, which everyone, even in the GOP, says is pretty awful. They're pushing a bill that's been pulling pretty poorly throughout this whole process. They want to move on to other things and they want to prove, you know, we've been promising for seven years we're going to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act the replace part has always been somewhat nebulous. They want to get this done to show 
we can govern, we can get things done, and you know, hopefully it's something for them that, that's going to rally the base going into the midterms. Um, that's from a, you know, a political standpoint. From policy standpoint, uh, you know, we got to keep watching out what's going to happen to these insurance markets. If they go ahead and pass the skinny bill, are insurers going to freak out immediately? Are they going to, you know, keep watching to see, well, you know, this is an opening bid, so we think these problems might be resolved in the House and Senate. There's an enrollment period coming up in November 1st, no matter what happens. Um, And if insurers are particularly concerned that, you know, their worries are going to come true, then they might flee the marketplaces and uh, that precipitates a, a real crisis in the insurance markets that needs to be addressed immediately. Well, listeners can stay tuned to Politico for not just the minute-to-minute coverage, but all those deeper policy implications as well. Jason Millman, thank you for joining Pulse Check. Thank you. Hey, it's Dan Diamond. And just to follow up on my chat with Jason, we talked a little bit about how the skinny repeal of the ACA, so-called skinny because it would have some pretty significant consequences, might include rolling back the ACA's prevention fund, Last week's episode of Pulse Check with the two health commissioners got into why the prevention fund is so important and why so many cities are counting on it. So if you haven't heard that episode, I'd recommend taking a listen and getting a sense for what's at stake there. Ben Wickler is the Washington director of Move On, which means he's trying to straddle two roles. As an advocate and activist, he's trying to exhort millions of Americans to push back against the Trump administration and Republicans' reforms. But on the other hand, He's trying to make sure that liberals and progressives don't get confident that the goals that they're pushing for have been realized. And that was forefront in my mind this week as I watched Republicans very quickly turn and move forward on their health repeal bill. I sat down with Ben in his office on Wednesday morning to talk about the state of play in activism and the push against Republicans' repeal efforts. Why don't we start with this question? There's an active, energized resistance to Donald Trump. Where does MoveOn fit in that? Where do you fit in that? Sure. So MoveOn.org is the biggest online multi-issue progressive group, which might sound like a narrow category, but there's actually a bunch of different organizations with millions of members each. Uh, We have uh, about 8 million members across the country, uh, folks that are energized, active, And what's happened since Donald Trump was elected is that the engagement from our membership has just exploded. So, for example, the number of people who donate to move on every month has more than tripled since Donald Trump's election. The number of people who, like, get on conference calls, who organize protests has just ballooned. It's mushroomed. And this is the great paradox of Donald Trump. He might not have been able to get much of his agenda done, but he has mobilized and energized opponents, the media, all these areas that he attacks seem to be benefiting. Absolutely. I mean, this is part of how polarization works in the U.S., right? Obama was elected and suddenly the right had a grassroots movement in a way that it hadn't for a very long time. And uh, Trump's election has really blown away any previous precedent. I mean, move on came of age during the Bush administration and was right at the heart of the fight against the Iraq war, for example. But the number of people that are engaged now and the the intensity of their engagement far outstrips what we saw during the Bush administration. And from what Uh, we can tell... Among liberals and progressives? Yeah, among liberals, progressives. There's also just people coming out of the woodwork who've never been involved in politics before. There are people... We have a summer, resistance summer kind of uh, mobilizing academy 
program where we're training a thousand people across the country. A lot of them have no previous involvement in politics, and they are organizing door-to-door canvases in their neighborhoods like this weekend to talk about healthcare to voters. They've been organizing protests outside of congressional offices. Uh, people are – it's kind of civics 101 in the heat of battle right now for a big chunk of the American public. One thing that I've been trying to figure out is that Tea Party resistance that emerged in the early Obama years focused on the health care fight, among other issues. Would you say, Ben, that the current progressive resistance is equal to what we saw in, in the early Obama years or is it different in kind and scope? So from every measure that I can see, it is much, much bigger. To take one example, the Women's March was about 10 times bigger than any day of marches or actions that the Tea Party ever organized. Call volumes to the Hill. Uh, If you talk to congressional offices, they have been bigger since Trump's election than anything they saw during the Obama era. There's just a a level of engagement that, you know, you talk to activists who are involved in the anti-war movement and the civil rights movement. The number of people that are in the streets right now uh, is at the same or higher level than, than those huge moments in American history. And, you know, what we're going to see over the next couple of years is how this translates into electoral power. But by every indication, uh, this is really a kind of tectonic plate shifting uh, level of passion, of commitment, of outrage, of fury, in some cases of fear and anxiety about what might come next and of of commitment to making it better. I want to put a pin in that electoral issue and come back to that. But The issues that are right now in front of your organization, these other organizations pushing back on Trump's agenda, immigration, uh, broader economic issues, the transgender service in the military, which right before our our interview, Trump was posting things on Twitter about, and then, of course, health care. Where do these issues rank? as organizing principles for this movement? Is is healthcare far and away the most important issue? Are they all equally important in your mind? So I will say there's no hierarchy of these things. And my sense from the reaction to MoveOn's email list among our Twitter followers, uh, people's engagement actually varies based on where the opportunity is to make a difference. So when the Muslim ban was first introduced, and people were being, you know, detained at airports. You're talking about the travel ban that the yeah, the, the travel ban. Uh, when was that? Was like February? It well, I, I think it was right in the end of January. January. The, the God, first, yeah. Uh, it does feel like years ago, though. It feels like years ago. Seventeen years ago. That's right. Uh, in the uh, Paleolithic era, uh, people flooded to the airports. We had there were millions of people who were were watching online, looking for anything they could do. Um, you know, that was where the, the energy and focus was because that was what was happening at that moment. Uh, but those same people have been out every week outside of their Republican representatives and senators' offices fighting on health care. Uh, health care is the issue that touches everyone personally. It touches their families. It touches their own hopes for their kids and, and for their own futures. Like I'm in regular touch with people who believe that their children uh, could die or be institutionalized for life if Medicaid is is ripped to shreds by by the Republican health care bill. So this is an issue where you know people's commitment and, and connection to it isn't just based on what's in the news. It's based on their lived experience. And something like that, uh, the intensity will never let up. People are never going to stop caring about the health care that, that affects them and, and their families and their communities. Uh, on other issues, you know, they sort of go in and out of public consciousness. Some people have a very you know, very strong personal connection. Uh, you know, friends and colleagues who are directly affected by the travel ban, and for them, uh, that's an issue that they they will never be able to ignore. It's forefront for them because it's their daily life. Absolutely, yeah. healthcare is is like that for almost everybody, and that's one reason why it's 
been the subject of such intense sustained commitment. The other thing is it is the one big thing that's moving through Congress. And as much as this is about Trump, it's really about the possible risk of their whole agenda. And I have to say, like, you know, there's been a lot of talk about how the media gets distracted by Russia and by tweets and what have you. I haven't seen the same thing from the grassroots. The grassroots like has been just glued to developments of the healthcare bill. And even when it's not on the front page of the newspaper, if we are getting close to a Republican you know, a vote, some kind of procedural move in the Senate, our call volumes explode. And that is happening because people are just <laughs> refreshing their Twitter feeds, looking every day for, is this thing really happening? Is this uh, ax about to fall? And that grassroots movement has been incredibly visible for months, whether during recess and House members who are holding town halls were getting swamped or the protesters showing up in in Congress and their offices. But I think the flip side of that is for all of the resistance, all the vocal pushback on the health care bill, the House passed a health care bill for all the celebration, even a few days ago about the Senate not moving forward on health care. Here we are. They're debating on the floor a bill that would repeal parts or all of the Affordable Care Act. Did the resistance fail on health care? I think the important thing is what is the base case? And the base case is clearly a world where the Republicans passed their repeal and delay bill on the first day of Donald Trump's presidency. That's what he vowed to do. That's what the House and the Senate. But that was never going to happen. That was legislatively impossible, essentially. It wasn't. I don't know, man. They passed this thing in 2015. They said that they were going to do it. Like there were, I remember Kevin McCarthy said, maybe it'll take more than a few days. Maybe it'll take a month. But if you, you know, just all the way through the House and Senate Republican caucuses, their plan was to do it right at the beginning of this administration. And there have been several points at which we heard, I, you know, I remember hearing from senators that the Republicans had the votes to do it. The first House vote, it was not a foregone conclusion that that was going to fall apart. Uh, and then the second one, the blowback that happened immediately after uh, from everything, every indication I have from the Hill, t- like really did set back the, the Republican calendar. So every day, I mean, we started this fight. I remember in December, I wrote a strategy memo uh, inside of MoveOn. We were talking about what was going to happen. We thought it was like more than 50-50 likely uh, this would be over before the end of winter, like in January, February. And I was hearing that from uh, senior people in the in the Senate on the Democratic side. I remember a senior uh, aide in the Senate telling me there was 100% certainty the Affordable Care Act would be repealed. This was a fait accompli. And the fact that it has not happened, that they are fractured, that they are you know fleeing their constituents at every turn, that uh, this the, this might still fall apart – that is a giant victory. The number one legislative agenda item for the, the Trump administration, for Republicans in Congress, uh, is on a knife's edge right now. And that is a, a huge tribute, I think, to the constant pressure from constituents who refuse to give up. So you don't think that activists are redefining success as the landscape changes around them? Because there was a fair amount of celebration just a few days ago. There was an article by a contributor in Politico, how Democrats won the healthcare war. And you look at that and you, you just cringe because you know the war is not over. But there was this outpouring of emotion only a few days ago. And yet here we are with the Senate moving forward on, on something, it seems. Do you feel like this is about managing expectations on progressives' side, so they're not disappointed if the Senate comes through with something that knocks down part or all of Obamacare. So I think everyone's expectations need to be far lower than they generally are. I think the appropriate way to, you know, look forward in the Trump era for the resistance, you for mean. the resistance, and and anybody really, is to think about the Bush administration. At the end of the the Bush years, the global economy was in total freefall. The U.S. economy was plunging, you know, heading towards a great recession. 
We were in a disastrous war that cost trillions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of lives in Iraq, thousands of American lives. Uh, we almost lost a major city with, with uh, Hurricane Katrina. Public trust, the world's respect for the United States, all those things were in a, in a state of collapse. Now, that was George W. Bush. He was a terrible president. But I cannot think of anyone who thinks that Donald Trump will do better than George W. Bush. So I think the baseline is that things go totally to hell. Like, that is what you need to expect of the Trump era. And if we do better than that, uh, it is by the skin of our teeth and, you know, our, our grit and determination and luck. Like, that we have to expect that things are going to go way downhill from where they are right now. And every day when that doesn't happen is a day when something went right. The fact that they haven't already gutted Medicaid and passed this and are moving on to, you know, a, a multi-trillion dollar tax cut for the ultra-wealthy that smashes the budget to pieces for, for a decade uh, – that, that is great. And I don't think it's re revising expectations downward to say uh, that it's, it's a win for our side when they're not achieving all the things they promised and vowed to do. Well, isn't there an alternate picture that someone could paint, which is Trump came into office amid fears that the world would change overnight, and yet here we are on the verge of August with the legislative agenda stalled, with America essentially in a similar place, at least domestically. Our international stature may have fallen somewhat, but the economy is still strong. The job market is growing. We are not in the disaster zone that so many pundits predicted would happen. So is it possible that maybe just as we should lower expectations on how successful the resistance will be? Should we lower expectations on how damaging the Trump administration will be? Maybe he's just an incompetent president who's not able to get across his agenda at a very polarized time. Maybe. I mean, look, I would love to, to hope that that's the case. If you look, if you talk to people who work in the executive branch, you get the sense there's a lot of fuses that have been lit for bombs that haven't exploded yet. Uh, CSRs is one example, right? There's, and, or the Iran nuclear deal is another one where Trump's instincts are to do the thing that everyone says and acknowledges and knows would be a disaster. And in each case, the word from the White House is that a bunch of aides have gotten together and said, don't do this, Mr. President, don't do this, don't do this, and prevailed on him at the last minute to pull back from the brink. And the CSRs, most of our listeners will know this. These are the subsidies for the insurance companies to participate in the Affordable Care Act exchanges. Trump has suggested he will pull those away and essentially sabotage the market. Enough of his aides have come forward and we reported on this at Politico and said, don't do this because the blame will be pinned on you. Yeah, exactly. So they've saved him from his worst impulses. But what are the chances that we win every time, that the adults in the room prevail on Donald Trump to do the right thing every single time? Do you want to bet on that? Like, <laughs> do you want to bet our economy? Do you want to bet people's health care on that? Should I tell, you know, I, I'm in regular touch with a mom of a, of a five-year-old who was born at one pound, 12 ounces, and she's alive because of Medicaid. And she needs you know, constant care right now. And I cannot tell her that everything is going to be fine for, for her daughter because Trump has grown-up advisors who will prevent him from doing the thing he constantly threatens and wants to do whenever he's frustrated. Like, that doesn't fly. We, we have to expect that things will be really bad and fight every day to keep them from going there. Let's move on from Trump, not, not to use a move-on pun. Let's focus on, <laughs> on Congress for, for a moment. And the senators who flipped, who said that they couldn't support a health care bill, they, they couldn't vote for a motion to proceed, and then they did. Dean Heller in Nevada, for example. There was so much activist pressure focused on these senators, these kind of swing votes. Yeah. And yet, at the end of the day, most of them at least voted to move forward on debating on this bill. From your perspective, Ben, as an organizer, was there anything else – that progressives could have done here? Or was there a bigger fight in, at, at play and there was only so much the resistance could do? 
So the first thing I'd say is it is five minutes to midnight, but it is not yet the end of the day. Like, Well, I mean, it's actually 11 a.m. in the morning. As you're talking, <laughs> but, yeah. Right. But in the, uh, the doomsday clock of, of healthcare repeal. Sure. Uh, if you're a nuclear scientist or you read the Watchmen comic book series, <laughs> you're familiar with the doomsday clock. Yeah. So the bulletin of atomic scientists, yeah. We know that, that Heller voted for the motion to proceed. We do not yet know how he's going to vote on the final bill. And there's a and bunch of we might of not know for days. We might not know for days. Maybe we'll never know. We, <laughs> I, I hope that we do find out. Uh, and I hope we find out in the right direction. But a lot of these senators keep on making these kind of hedged bets. And the argument that McConnell is making at every step of the way is that this vote doesn't represent your final vote. He's saying, just vote to start the debate. You're not voting on anything. He did a very clever thing, which is to have the vote on the motion to proceed without announcing what the bill would be so that no clever, matter – Clever or diabolical. I mean this is – breaking in precedent in so many ways. Oh, yeah. And yet it, it worked because by having something so vague, he could just focus on getting people to agree that they wanted to debate a measure. That's right. I, I think of Trump Care and McConnell's strategy for it right now as the liquid metal T-1000 cyborg from Terminator 2. It basically can change shape. It can look like anything. It can go through a keyhole and then reform as this lethal monster on the other side. And what Mitch McConnell is and, doing— And some would say it's just as lethal, depending on whether you're on Medicaid or not. Oh, but, a lot more lethal, right? The, term, the, the T-1000 could only kill one person at a time. This is—I mean, I don't want to joke about this, but this, this bill could be really deadly. And what McConnell is doing is basically forcing it all through the next step at each step of the process— now, the thing is that at the end of the day, at some point, there will be an actual bill that will become law if it's voted for. And that is the moment of truth. That's the ground truth when we find out whether everything has worked. The, the, it would be much better if we'd block the motion to proceed. There's you know, lots of points at which potentially this thing could be uh, slain for good. But fundamentally, we'll, we'll find out at the end of the story whether everything that everyone's been doing, whether the overwhelming weight of public opinion – will actually prevail, whether democracy will work in this case, or whether diabolical, uh, ingenious legislative maneuvering will get Republicans like Dean Heller to commit political suicide and vote for something that will devastate their constituents and cost them their uh, reelection. You said it would be much better if this bill failed, if this measure failed, and you're talking in terms of impact on the average American, at least in your reading of the Affordable Care Act and what Republicans would do. I've been wondering a lot about what is better for the movement. And this gets back to what you were saying at the beginning. In a world where Hillary Clinton was elected, Move On would almost certainly have a lower profile, fewer engaged Americans. I mean, there's always the resistance to whoever's in charge. If this bill is successful and there are millions of Americans who lose Medicaid coverage or see their health care negatively affected, isn't that ultimately as, as bad as that would be in your mind as a policy? Isn't that also a major political win for the movement? Because now you've got all these angry, annoyed people who will be motivated to make change at the polls. The journalist John Nichols said to me uh, in 2004, I, I was at the Republican and Democratic conventions for Al Franken. I was producing his radio show at the time. And uh, Nichols was there covering them for the nation. And I remember saying, God, it feels so different at these two conventions. And he said, Ben, the thing you need to understand is Democrats get involved in politics to help people and Republicans get involved in politics to win. And I think you're seeing that play out right now in this healthcare fight in this incredibly vivid way. Every single Democrat I know thinks that if the Republicans pass their bill and people start losing their insurance, the Democrats will win much bigger uh, waves of elections through 2018 and beyond. And yet every Democrat I know is fighting with everything they've got to stop this thing from passing. Because for them, the whole point of being involved in politics is to stop bills like this and, and pass bills that actually expand health care coverage for people. For Republicans, if you look at the arguments that they're making to pass this, if you look at when Trump really turns the screws on people, 
It has nothing to do with, with helping people or making their lives better. Their argument over and over and over is that we will be annihilated electorally if we don't keep our promise. That's an argument about winning. Now, there's a disconnect here because Democrats think it'll hurt them if they pass this bill. Their argument to themselves, the Republicans, is that it, it helps them electorally if they pass this bill. And we'll find out who's right. I The only way to make sense of their contention that I can think of is, A, a belief that the donor class that really cares about the tax cuts of the repeal, the people like Steve Wynn, who's been you know hauled out to, to pressure Dean Heller. The billionaire in Nevada. The, the, the billionaire in Nevada, yeah. yeah. Uh, casino magnate Steve Wynn. The only reason that I can understand Republicans would think that their bread is buttered on the side of passing this thing is that their big donors will come through in a big way if they pass their repeal and they hand over the, the giant tax cuts. That makes sense to me. The, I guess the other piece is that the right-wing kind of media echo chamber, the Fox News's and you know Hannity and Rush Limbaugh radio shows of the world, those guys will cheer on a win and that, that activist base is a big part of how they get elected. But I think that they're underestimating the general election backlash. I think they're really underestimating uh, how much you know, people that, that lose their insurance and believe accurately that the only way that they could try to reverse that tide is by electing a lot of Democrats. Republicans underestimate how much those people will knock on doors through rain, sleet, and snow, do everything they possibly can to throw the Republicans out if their families are personally threatened. Well, let's pull the pin out of that electoral issue that we were talking about earlier. If there is no electoral wave against Republicans next year. We were just talking about managing expectations. The Senate map is not that favorable for Democrats to pick up that many seats. And the House also favors Republicans when you look at the fundamentals. What if Democrats go through all of this, push back on the Trump agenda, and then don't really make much headway in the 2018 midterms? Is that a major setback for the resistance movement? If we can get through the the Trump era, however long it lasts with our basic liberties intact, with our healthcare protected, uh, you know, with our lives and our economy in the world not annihilated by a, a nuclear holocaust, uh, that's a win. And You really are defining success now. <laughs> I, I have to say, I mean, I woke up. If we're alive in several years, that is a victory, <laughs> says Ben Wickler. Uh, I think there's every reason to think that we are poised for a, a big swing of the electoral pendulum. If you look at state legislature special elections, uh, Democrats are just winning them over and over and over in districts that are supposed to always go to Republicans. Even in the House races where Democrats are losing, they're losing by so much less than they've ever lost before. And it, you know, if you have anything like the swing we've seen in the special elections in the general election in 2018, uh, Democrats are going to win the House. Republicans are not going to be anywhere close to the filibuster-proof majority in the Senate that they're dreaming of. And you know, maybe we hold or even gain a bit. I, I think you know the melt the. The electoral map in the Senate's absolutely tilted against Democrats. Uh, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't fight for every seat. And I, I have to say, I've been so happy to see all these red state Senate Democrats in places where Trump won fighting with their hearts on their sleeves to keep the Affordable Care Act and to protect Medicaid. There was a question, I remember in November, there was a big question about whether Democratic unity could hold in the face of this. There has been no question about it for the last six months. Democrats are all totally united. And that, to me, bodes well for, for an ability to turn out the grassroots army that, that can help Democrats not only protect those seats, but actually extend their gains. Last question. It's July 26. The health care measure is being debated in the Senate. 
What is your role going to be over the next few days? You're going to be on conference calls? Or are you going to be marching? Or are you not going to be sleeping? Like, what, <laughs> what does the head of Move On do when there is this big a legislative issue being debated in Congress? And how are you going to mobilize the forces that stand behind you? Um, so I'm the Washington director of Move On. We actually have two executive directors uh, that live in Chicago and Oakland, respectively. My role over the next few days, most importantly, is to channel what's happening here to my colleagues and to move on members across the country so they can take action in their states, in their congressional districts, and pressure their senators. The most important battle in D.C. is determined by what happens at home. So I'm uh, on you know, calls and, and meetings with folks on the Hill, with allies here, finding out the twists and turns of this fight. I'm tweeting constantly. I'm uh, you well, know, in the era of Trump, you have to. That's, <laughs> you have, you have to tweet. that's your only chance to reach the president, the viral tweet that somehow gets in front of him. Uh, I, you know, I don't know whether Trump's reading my tweets, but I can tell you there's a lot of uh, activists out there who are uh, you know, pulling, pulling down on Twitter to, to get the latest news every few minutes. And folks are just ready to turn on a dime, to flood the Senate with calls, to go to their local uh, Senate offices. Uh, people are doing everything they possibly can. And just supporting and feeding those activists across the country, I think, is is my most crucial role. The second thing I'm doing is strategizing constantly with a range of allies from ADAPT and the Center for Popular Democracy and uh, Planned Parenthood and you know the different labor unions like SEIU, all these different groups right now in D.C. are making sure there is a, a constant stream of opportunities for people just to show up and show the the intensity and the passion and commitment of the grassroots to stop this bill. And Democratic senators draw energy from seeing people, you know, cheering and roaring and chanting uh, to support them in this fight. And we want Republicans to have that flashback to when the Affordable Care Act was passed and all these Tea Party activists were in the streets. And, and they know what happened in 2010. We want them to know that their electoral future is on the line uh, if they if they leave the pin out of this grenade that they, that they just pulled out. Well, it is a busy time for you. We will let you get back to the organizing, the activating, the tweeting, and we'll see what happens with the play from the healthcare fight. Ben Wickler, thank you so much. Thanks so much. That's it for Paul's check today. And just a quick plug, if you enjoyed Ben Wickler's comments on how healthcare reform is like the Terminator, you might enjoy Isaac Dover, my colleague who hosts Off Message, Politico's podcast on politics and interesting conversations with leaders around the country. His conversation with Arnold Schwarzenegger, the original Terminator. Find it at Off Message on your favorite podcast app. My thanks to Ben Wickler, to Jason Millman for making time for the interview, and to Rachel Cusick for following me around D.C. on a very busy day. You can find Pulse Check on all of your favorite podcast apps. And let me know if you're at Politicon, the unconventional political convention in California this weekend. I'm at ddiamond at politico.com. I'm at ddiamond on Twitter. And I'll be back with a new episode of Pulse Check very soon. <laughs>